Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. This year, we thought it would be fun to kind of take a look at some of our beloved Christmas songs, right? Like every year, right, there's the things that you do to kind of get yourself ready for the season. You put up the decorations and you cook the food. And then you also have those beloved Christmas songs. And some are the high, uh, the high church liturgical songs, O Holy Night, um, or O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And then there's the more kitschy kind, you know, Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas, right? So we've got two polar opposites, and for all of us, when we listen to these songs, they can be very near and dear to our hearts. And some of these songs, whether they're, you know, point us directly to Jesus or seem more absurd, uh, there are some that thread the needle, all right? Some songs, Christmas songs, thread the needle. They've, they've got all the cheese, right, while they also try to point us to something higher. And I want you to take a little listen to this song right here that I think is attempting to do just that. So that might be new for some of you. Some of you might be so young, you're like, what the heck did I just watch? (laughs) And there's some of you who are right now just in your moment, you're in your glory because you love George Michael, you love Bono, you love Phil Collins, all right? And you're just like, you're just feeling the Christmas vibes. Do they know that it's Christmas? What a great title for a Christmas song. This is a very beloved song by some, right? Not by a lot, but by some for sure. If you go on YouTube and actually look up this video, there's over 5,000 comments on the YouTube uh, video of this. I just invite you to do that sometime today if you want to chuckle a little bit today. But for your amusement, I wanted to show you some of the love that this this, uh, video has, that this Christmas song has. Jojo717, what a great YouTube name, whatever. Uh, Probably my favorite Christmas song gives me chills. (laughs) I feel a blend of happiness, nostalgia, and a little sadness even. And it's fun to listen to. The 80s are so special. Plus, I just love Boy George. Yeah, what's not to love about Boy George? There's a lot of love for George Michael, a lot of uh, fangirls, fanboys about uh, George uh, Mike, sorry, George Michael, the late George Michael. George Michael, his voice sends shivers. Absolute legend. George Michael is expressing a genuine happiness at minute 335, simply amazing. I don't know how you pick up genuine happiness from that, but I guess you do. George Michael took the song to the next level. I guess there's levels to this song, and George Michael took it to the next level because he's such a legend. 37 years later, and it's still as good as it was in 84. Was it good in 84? (laughs) I don't know. I was three at that time. I love Mommy uh, Mira Nuker. Mommy Mira Nuker. Here's what she said. 
She's, uh, she clearly is trying to pick up her kid's vernacular, all right? So I still listen to the song even though when it's not Christmas, we're close to Christmas season, it's such a banger. I don't know what kind of parties Mommy Miranuka is throwing. Uh, I want to avoid those maybe. Paulie says this, that bell synthesizer and outro melody is a definition of Christmas. No, it's a definition of 80s music, not Christmas. And so there's all this love, right? All this love for this music video. There's some people that like, and again, you have that song, right? We all have that song. It, it, it comes on on the radio or you look it up on Spotify or whatever, and you play that song because you want to get into the Christmas vibes, into the Christmas season, and you want to feel all the fields. And there's something about that. Like tradition does that. It helps us rewalk that very familiar path, right? In our hearts, right? Like not an actual physical path, but we do the same things over and over and over again because it helps bring us into a moment, bring us into a season. Human beings, right, we are uh, rhythmic like this. We are routine like this. We are habitual like this. We want that familiar because it helps us grab a hold of the past. It helps us make us, make us feel that sense of like I'm a part of something bigger than myself and in some ways helps direct my gaze, my walk as I'm heading into the future. However, while tradition is very helpful with this, tradition, however, can go sideways on us. Like, clearly, this music video does not capture all that Christmas is about, right? Like, it's, that's not what it's about. Actually, this music video was written and produced and made. Apparently, none of the stars, celebrities, again, they used to be stars and celebrities, if you're young. They used to be stars and celebrities. Like, they didn't get paid, I guess, anything to make this music video, but it really was about raising money and awareness for people in Africa, in Ethiopia specifically, who were starving. And so the whole song is about like, hey, there's people in Africa that they, they live in the dark, they don't have enough food, you know, they don't understand, do they really even know what Christmas is about? They don't have snow, and so give your money so that we can feed them. That kind of is the thrust of the song. But with tradition, as we rewalk that same path over and over and over again, the familiarity can then be sort of misinterpreted and misunderstood, detached even from its origin, and thus it kind of becomes a little absurd. Jenny wrote this on the comment post. She wrote this about this music video. She says, yes, it's an amazing song. The talent is unbelievable, just incredible. But this song is also very special to me for another reason. The day it was recorded was the day I was born on Sunday, 25th, November, 1984. She's clearly European, right? Because the month comes before the day, not the day before the month, right? I was born around 6 a.m. And by 8 a.m., the artists were arriving at the Notting Hill studio in London. What a fantastic piece of history to be born on. I actually have the newspaper, which features at the start of the video, which my dad brought at the hospital where I was born at. This song will always be so special to me. My family, 38 years later uh, on, still gives me goosebumps to know I was born on this day. For Jenny, this song is not about feeding people in Africa. It's some way of a way of placing herself in history. It's a way of kind of ascribing identity, right? Like, here's who I am, here's the significance of the song, and I was born on this day, and she's having a sense of herself. And the, but that's at the point of the song, right? The point of the song was to get us to give generously to people in need, not for us to find ourselves. But Jenny finds herself in this song. Juliana writes this, this song makes me cry, cry of joy, because when I hear it on the radio, I know I'll finally be going home to family soon. Do they know it's Christmas? That line makes me think of everyone who spends Christmas alone without family or having a hard time. 
my heart goes out to them. So Juliana gets a sense of, hey, this song is not about me, but about others. But for her, it's this sentimentality, this uh, empathy, this compassion for, what, for those who are celebrating alone, not to feed those in Africa, right? We see the difference. While they can have all the vibes and the good feelings, they can have a sense of compassion for others, it's detached from the real meaning of do they know that it's, do they know that it's Christmas? And this is how tradition can go sideways on us. We begin to interpret our traditions, we begin to interpret songs, uh, interpret lots of things, and while they still give us the same feeling, while they still maybe have us have that sense of, of being, a part, uh, being a part of a bigger story, and they allow us to walk these familiar paths, they become nonsensical, they become kind of absurd when they're detached from their origin and they don't really correctly point us into a meaningful future. And so what we got to do here this morning a little bit is deconstruct tradition so that we can then meaningfully reconstruct, well, what is Christmas traditions all about? What is Christmas traditions all about? In regards to us, those who know God, love God, and are trying to move towards Him, not just in this moment, but with our futures. Well, first we got to know, we got to say this, traditions aren't bad. And sometimes when traditions go sideways, right, you like get into those traditions and you're like, why do we do this thing? Like, I don't understand. We do this thing. We just do it over and over and over again. And they kind of like kind of become like rote. And you're sort of like, well, if the tradition is meaningless, we'll just kind of get rid of all tradition, right? We want to go all bad on tradition. That's not the point. Because again, in our nature, we want tradition. We want to be able to have a sense of familiar, familiarity, again, a connection from previous generations, something to pass on to future generations. And God himself created traditions. In fact, even in the scriptures, Jesus himself enters into our traditions even uh, at his birth. So Luke chapter two, Jesus has just been born, okay? And there's three different traditions that we see Jesus show up at. Read with me here at Luke chapter two, starting in verse 21. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it's written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord a pair of turtle doves, or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence for all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. When we engage in foreign traditions, right? Like maybe you got married and then you came into like, you know, your in-law's family and they have different traditions and they're different than what you grew up in. You're like, this just seems absurd. Like, what are we doing here? You know, right? You have like some of those things. 
And so here, for some of us, if we're not familiar with the Old Testament Mosaic Law, it might feel like we just read a bunch of nonsense. Like there's these things that are happening, these religious rites and rituals that are happening, and I don't really get the significance. Well, I'm not gonna go too much into the details of them. That's for a different servant, a different teaching, a different time. What I want you to catch is this, okay? What I want you to catch is this, that Jesus becomes present in the midst of human tradition. Jesus becomes present, physically present, in the midst of human tradition. So these people, Israel, have been practicing for almost 1,500 maybe even more, a little bit more than 1,500 years, these traditions passed down from one generation to next generation to next generation, over and over and over again. And while all these traditions had a purpose, all right, circumcision was about taking a boy and saying, hey, you're now a part of the people of Israel, all right, that was a way of, of this ritual, this rite of, hey, were I marking you off as part of our own? All right, there was this presentation, uh, tradition, this rite, all right, we he- read here in scripture, This was for the first child, male or female, who opened the mother's womb, was to be dedicated to God, turned over. This is, you are now the Lord's. And there's this purification ritual, which for a wife who had given birth, she was called unclean, deemed unclean, unable to come into the temple and worship until she was made clean. Again, I don't want to go too much into that. All you need to hear is that she was not able to be a part of the people until she became clean. This is the purification ritual, not just for her here, but also for Joseph as well. So there's these three different traditions, but in every single way, Jesus becomes present, okay? In the circumcision tradition, or tradition, verse 21, the emphasis is not on the circumcision, it's on what the giving of his name, Jesus. The name that came from the, who God the Father gave the angel messenger to give to Mary and Joseph, right, who now is applied to the boy, it's about his name, it's about his person. Jesus now becomes a real person to us by getting this name, getting this identity. This is who he is. As he's marked out for God's people, Israel, he is now named, identified. In this presentation, all right, in this presentation tradition, presenting the first male or female, all right, the, the child actually in, in the actual practice of it didn't have to be present. The child doesn't have to be present it was more the mom and dad saying uh, within, uh, within their community at the temple, hey, we are presenting, giving over our first child uh, to the Lord. But Jesus, what? Jesus is actually present during this presentation. He's physically there as Mary and Joseph present Jesus, what? To his heavenly father. And then during the purification ritual, they sacrifice, right? They sacrifice these animals for their cleansing. And who are Mary and Joseph holding? the one who will be the final sacrifice, the one who will actually end that tradition because it is he who actually fully cleanses us, right? And this is the story that plays out in the scriptures. And what we hear from Simeon is that what his eyes have th- seen the salvation of, of the Lord. So Jesus hasn't taught anything, no miracles have been done, he hasn't gone to the cross or rose from the dead yet, and yet is identified in the temple, in his presence, being physically there as the savior of not just Israel, but the entire world. Do we get the gravity of this? Humans are marching forward, generation after generation, practice after practice, and then Jesus shows up. You see, Jesus fulfills, his arrival fulfills all tradition. Jesus' arrival 
fulfills all tradition. All tradition is about him. It's about pointing us towards his person, towards his showing up because he is the savior. And fundamentally, our practices as we talk about this Christmas season is that it is about anticipating his arrival and then receiving him when he shows up. Now, where tradition can go wrong is that tradition can cause disorientation, right? We've been there, right? We've had practices where we felt like we got lost in. Again, we do the thing. We inherited the thing from our parents, and we do whatever that tradition is, and at some point in time, we question, why is it that we do this? I don't really get why we do this. And we can either keep on doing it just because it's something that we've always done, or we question it and we say, like, what, you know, what's the real meaning of this so that we can meaningfully engage in the practice, correct? So the, your seventh grade self, or I'm giving you permission already, the seventh grader, the little seventh grader inside of you is welcome to chuckle at this. But the Gillespie's have a Christmas tradition, our home, on Christmas Day. It's called find the pickle. Uh, so we hide the pickle in the tree, okay? And so when our kids wake up, the first kid to find the pickle ornament in the tree, they get a special prize. So we give them all the gifts, but then this one kid, if whoever finds, of our four kids, finds a pickle, then they get a special prize on Christmas Day. And so I was actually this weekend asking Allie, I was like, why did we start practicing this? Because I had forgotten. <laughs> I was like, why do we do this hide the pickle sort of thing? You know? And so she was like, well, I was like, did we get it from your family? She's like, no. Like, remember we used to serve as missionaries over in Germany. She's like, remember a German student told me about this tradition of hiding the pickle, and so I bought this pickle ornament in Germany, and I thought it would be fun to do together as a family. I was like, okay. I was like, well, then why do Germans do hide this pickle game? And she's like, because the first one that finds it gets, gets a gift. I said, well, but why do you hide the pickle? Like, what's the significance of the pickle? And she's like, because the first one that finds it gets the gift. And I'm like, no, but why the pit? Why are we hiding an ornament pickle in the tree on Christmas morning? What's the whole point of this thing? And she was like, to, to get a gift. The whole point is to get a gift. I'm like, I don't, you know, we're, we're missing here. So th this is disorientation, right? What, we're trying to find the origin. We're trying to find the purpose of why it is that we do this thing. To have a competitive game in the morning, I guess, is fine. Giving gifts, you know, is fine on Christmas morning. That's fine, right? But when you begin to say, like, why do we do this? Why would we pass it down? Why would our kids do it? Well, then, like, where, where's its origin at, right? So tradition can become disorienting. Why do we practice this thing? When we're singing, do they know that it's Christmas in our Land Rover while we sip hot chocolate to go by our tree misses the origin of the of this song? It's absurd. It's nonsensical. It gives us the good vibes, but it doesn't drive us to the point, right? The point is to financially give to people who are hungry in the season, right? That's the point of the song. So I've got some friends who are into like caving and uh, scuba diving, right? And so from my understanding, now I've never, I mean, I've been in caves before, but I've never been caving, okay? I've snorkeled before, but I've never been scuba diving. From my understanding, scuba diving and caving like can be a very disorienting experience. I had a friend that briefly got lost in some caves in Kentucky when he was spelunky with some friends, and he said for about 20 minutes there was just sheer panic why? Because there's like, we don't know our up from our down or left from our right. We don't know where we came from or where we're going. We don't know how to get out of here. I've got some friends here at church, Jim and uh, Pam Brochus, who scuba dive. They love scuba diving. And so I call them on the phone. I'm like, you know, tell me about scuba diving and getting lost. And they're like, yeah, well, you've got to be very careful when you scuba dive that you have these markers to track where you're going and where you've been. 
And they said the most dangerous type of uh, scuba diving is, uh, I know I'm going to botch this name, cenote uh, cave, sorry, it's like ocean cave diving, cenote. Um, In the Yucatan, there's like these, uh, you've seen them, like in movies, like hollowed out kind of limestone rock where there's like a pool of water. It looks really pretty. But to actually dive into these caves, into the ocean is actually very perilous. A lot of people die like every single year just by uh, scuba diving these areas. Jim and Pam have been like, hey, we've been in some of these caves under the ocean and they have signs clearly that say, hey, if you go any further than this point, like you will die, like you'll get lost. There's no way, there's no hope for you, right? And sometimes with traditions, it's like that. We do the tradition over and over and over again We don't understand what it's pointing us to. We don't understand where it's been. And so it's hard to meaningfully practice. Yes, we can meaningfully practice in order to to get the feelings, but in the sense of moving us forward as a people, not just us, but as a community, where's its origin? Where is it driving us to? So I was curious, where did the tradition of gift giving occur in our practices? Probably the majority of us give gifts. We give gifts to our kids, all the family and friends. And I was just curious, like, is it, has this always been, right? Has this always been practiced? Well, no, not necessarily. It was around the mid-1800s that we as a culture began to give gifts as a culture during the Christmas season, all right? Harriet Beecher Stowe, who wrote Uncle, Tom, Uncle Tom's Cabin, wrote a lesser-known short story about Christmas called A Good Gift. And her character, Ellen Stewart, in this story, Uh, Ellen Stewart is super stressed because she has to buy gifts for all of her family and friends. And she's like, they have everything. She's like, they have everything that they need. And yet I've got to find a meaningful gift. She's like, like vexed. How am I going to get good gifts for all of them? Well, this character, Ellen, in the story recalls that when she was young, when she was a youth, she's like, we used to not give gifts to each other. But then we started giving gifts to each other, and now it's what everybody does, and now she's stressed out about it. And we feel that, right? I'm not trying to say don't give gifts. That's not what this is really about. It's not don't not get gifts. It's why are we doing what we're doing? What is Christmas really about? Well, Christmas at its essence is communal. It's about gathering. I don't know if you've seen one of these before. This is like a Christmas market in Germany. They have them all over Europe. It's like this, right? Like when Allie and I lived in Germany, we went to the Christmas market and everything was happening in the center of the city, right? Like if you were in our city, there was nothing really happening during Christmas on the outskirts, right? Everything was driven to the center. It was about coming to the center of the market, not just buying, but then there was a singing and the wassling and the chestnuts and all that kind of stuff. It was about being together with the town, being together with the city, right? Christmas is about gathering coming together and it's in coming together that it's 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 at that place that what we await and anticipate the arrival of Jesus Christ so our tradition what's the emphasis the emphasis is that we gather we get together and we anticipate the coming of Jesus this is what Simeon did in the temple Simeon is at the temple waiting right and we can only imagine this man he must we assume that he's elderly although we don't know in the text whether or not he really was elderly or not. But he's been waiting his whole life. And he was promised by God that he would put his eyes on the Messiah, the promised one. And so you can imagine this guy spending day after day watching young boys get circumcised, watching families get purified, watching these presentations of children to the Lord as he's, as he's practicing, practicing these things and as the people practicing these things, he's awaiting the fulfillment of them 
with the coming of Messiah. That word, the uh, consolation of Israel, all right, he was awaiting the consolation of Israel, that actually really means the coming of the Messiah. He was awaiting the coming of the Messiah. And when Jesus arrived, there's incredible joy and excitement and fulfillment. I went on a summer mission in college. Uh, there's 80 of us students that gathered for the summer to do uh, this mission thing. And uh, there was one guy who had to travel the furthest. He went from Las Vegas to Virginia. And uh, he had a 36-hour car ride, so he didn't take a plane. He drove by himself 36 hours. This is what crazy college students do. And so we had all arrived, right? Because we had all gotten there, we had unpacked, you know, got set up in the hotels and stuff where we're staying. And we had been there for a little bit, did some grocery runs, all that kind of stuff. But you can't start until the last person shows up. You can't start the thing until you're full, until everyone is present. And so we waited for Kevin, like for several hours. And one of us was on the phone with Kevin. And he's like, hey, you know, I'm an hour out. I'm getting off the exit. I'm like down the street, right? And as Kevin got closer, we just naturally gathered in the parking lot. 79 of us gathered in the parking lot waiting for Kevin to come. And that was the anticipation. That was the excitement was the arrival of Kevin. Because what once Kevin showed up, let's go, right? Once Kevin shows up, let's go. And the God's people were waiting for Jesus to show up. And once Jesus showed up, man, let's go, right? There's that excitement of that anticipation. So this Christmas season, as we engage in uh, Advent, man, the invitation is this to come and engage the tradition that anticipates arrival. Come and engage the tradition that anticipates arrival. This is what grandma invites you to, right? This is, this is the heart of grandma. In September, grandma calls you, and she says, you'll be with us on Thanksgiving, correct? And you're like, I'm not even thinking about Thanksgiving. I've got so many things to do between now and then. But grandma is adamant. You're going to be there, right? We can expect you. And not just can we expect you. You're going to do that thing you always do. You're going to bring that dish, right? You're going to lead us in this practice. You're going to lead that game. You're going to sing this song. You're going to say that prayer, right? And grandma is organizing all of the things. Why? Because she wants all of her kids there. She wants everyone to be present, right? Because it's not necessarily just about the tradition. It's not about just doing the steps. It's about what being together, being together. And it's not complete to grandma unless everybody comes. For those of us who are in September annoyed by grandma's preeminent calling, we feel all the stress of all the things that we've got to do, right? We feel that. There's all the things. And grandma knows we have all the things. But we know when we arrive, the experience of that is much more full. Because we know that we're, when we're a part of our kin, when we're a part of like that family, that deeper sense of who we belong to, right, that bigger story, that bigger family becomes very evident to us. There's a certain satisfaction in it that goes beyond hot chocolate and songs and some tr Christmas lights. It's, it's the presence of one another, correct? And Grandma understands that. That's why she invites us to be what physically with each other, to be present there. And this is what God is inviting us to, to be physically present, to be a part of the communal celebration I want to read this passage for you in Isaiah 55. And this might sound a little blasphemous, but I want you to hear grandma's voice, okay? This is God speaking. But, but that part of grandma that wants everyone there, that I feel like this is how God is speaking to his people, okay? 
This passage right here was written a couple hundred years before Jesus was even born, as he's trying to encourage Israel to gather for the arrival of Jesus. Here's what he says. He says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk, without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear, and come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that you did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and for his Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. When the voice of God says to you, come, he says come, like gather, be a part of the tradition, be a part of the practices of the church. Why? Because these practices mark our future as we anticipate the arrival of Jesus Christ. He says you, you rush about. You do all these things that don't ultimately satisfy. They don't ultimately feed your soul. So come, listen diligently to me, he says. Listen diligently diligently, because I want to satisfy you. I want to fill you with good things. And that was a promise of Christ. In Mary's prayer in Luke chapter one, she even says, for those who hunger, you will fill with good things through the birth right, of this boy, Jesus Christ. So this Christmas season, I wanna challenge you with that. As you listen to the songs, as you string the lights, as you sip hot chocolate, as you give gifts, that's fine. We're gonna hide the pickle at the Gillespie household. We're gonna do that thing, it's fun. But really, it's about this. It's about the community, and it's about a community that's awaiting the arrival of Jesus. Yes, he showed up the first time 2,000 years ago. Our Savior who came, became present amongst us. But the scriptures say that he's gonna come again, and he's gonna bring the fullness of the goodness of his kingdom with him at that time. And so what are you anticipating? What arrival are you waiting for? Would you come and hear God as he invites you to wait for him. Would you pray with me? God, um, you know the noise. You're not unaware, not unsympathetic. You know the noise that surrounds us, all the things that eat up our heart and our mental space, all the things that distract and disorient us from the real essence of this season, which is about your presence, about you showing up, about you. So God, would we walk this season with a little more freedom? Would we walk as we listen to the songs, we do the things, with eyes fixed on you, ears turned towards you, that we might hear your voice that is continually inviting us to come, to come, not just in thought or in feeling, but with ourselves, with our bodies, with what we do. They would come and we would be a part of the people, your people, who are waiting for your next arrival. 
when it is on that day that you'll bring the fullness of your goodness and your kingdom. Because, because yes, Lord, we long and we thirst for that which really satisfies. And when we fix our eyes on you as one who delivers your son Jesus to us. Amen. Hi again. Just a reminder to let us know that you're listening by heading over to bgcovenant.org connect. If you're ready to be known, we'd love to know you. And we hope you'll join us soon for our live Sunday service at 9.30, 11 a.m. or 11 a.m. online. Thanks for listening.